0: You're listening to Campfire Conversations, brought to you by Three Rivers Land Trust. Connected to the land, committed to conservation. good feedback from our last couple of episodes or at least i did i don't know if you got in or not mm-hmm. yeah i got an email from uh one of our farther away listeners not our farthest but one of our farther away listeners um, my buddy cory in alaska mm-hmm. sent us an email about fox and i and a pretty pretty good article on bald eagles that I uh, i will share with the class at a later date yeah um when it's more applicable to the topic we're talking about but yeah appreciate uh cory
1: writing in and listening and Hey to you and your wife and your family up there. I have a... I got a text from a friend who said he listens to... It's actually a guy that I met on public lands who's from my hometown, Mike. I actually have him in my phone. The as, duck hole? Yeah, I have, yeah. Him, I have him in my phone. as His name's... I, I won't say his last name. I know his last name, Um, but I have him in my phone when I first met him, the day I met him, as Mike Duck, because I didn't know his last name. <laughs> I do that all the time. <laughs> but uh, if he's listening, hey, what's up, Mike? But he this this podcast is paying off for me because he's like i heard about your puppy that you got from lost highway and uh, i got a dog kennel uh that i can give to you with the camo cover and everything i'm gonna go pick that up so for free for free yeah. for he's free a, you know, he's just the kind of guy he yeah is.
0: anybody any listeners that like give <laughs> give away free stuff that's in good shape you know sam and i are always into free gear <laughs> uh, if you got more than you can handle uh-huh. yeah that's right um, but uh getting into uh getting into it today i'd like to uh reach out and say uh go check out backcountry beyond make sure you swing by and support those guys who are supporting local conservation it's grilling season they got it all trader wise sauce wise spice wise i mean we were just watching a video a second ago cooking mm-hmm. on the old grill
1: you so cooking it was me cooking uh-huh. you can see and that you pick it, up all your grilling stuff from backcountry pretty much yeah,
0: yeah. they pretty much everything i get as far as uh custom seasoning
1: comes from them i just brought them up but our buddies over at backcountry and beyond grayson Geyer, um, another friend of the podcast another sponsor and just a good buddy of ours um, we've been in talks with him and emily shirey about hopefully coming on and maybe doing a podcast with us soon they're one of our most listened to episodes so maybe we'll have a refresher and talk puppy training and stuff actually i want to say they're number one now are they yeah well there's one and maybe one and two are up there because they did separate episodes last mm-hmm. time but they work together a lot and they have a podcast gun dog companion gun dog podcast um, if you want to check that out but shout out to them if you're looking to train yourself to become the best dog trainer you can be go check out lost highway uh who else who else we want ch- you want to traveler trading company hey did you run your belt at the beach of course i did yeah, yeah. me too yeah salt water doesn't phase those bills <laughs> no no, I wear it every day. I'm wearing it right now. My, oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> the big <laughs> iron belt. It? Yeah, this is uh, tell Mark. okay. great segue time. Uh-huh. Applicable
0: to the topics today. So the belts that we're running, uh, uh, Mark listens to the show, so I know you've
1: heard us talk about <laughs> these belts. Yeah, the, int- t- quick introduction. Mark the, Dye, yeah. our friend yeah. Mark Dye is on with us, who will introduce himself in a second. But go ahead. The uh, These belts are the perfect EDC belt for your concealed carry
0: piece or you're outside the waistband carry piece because they're super rigid and so if you're tugging on your on your uh big pist- iron. pistol yeah if you're tugging on your big iron it's stiff enough that it doesn't flex um the belt doesn't flex or roll at all so i've really come to like it for for carry
1: or just for wearing I mean, yeah I we got to it name it
0: time. yeah we named the belt on the show
1: yeah, it's probably we say it all the time, but it's probably the best thing we ever did on the show. <laughs> so yeah, shout out to those guys. Shout out to Wolf and Iron. Shout need, out to uh, Marty Robbins. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Marty Robbins is not sponsored by the podcast. <laughs> uh, all right, let's get into it today. So today we're going to be talking the right to bear arms, Second Amendment, and how to work on your arms when you, uh, when you need them fixed. Um, we've got Mark Dye with us, who is the director of the gunsmithing program at Montgomery community college, a college that we've worked with on lots of, they've got a forestry program too. We've done a lot of stuff with them through the forestry program. One of uh, two schools here in North Carolina, that have a two year forestry program, but, they were focusing specifically on the gunsmithing program which is probably what you're famous for
2: yeah i would say most likely um it's the largest program at a little bitty school mm-hmm. so we uh you know we tend to be fairly well known around the country and interestingly we're we're probably more well known in other places than we are here in north carolina no kidding um but yeah it's it's um, it's a very unique program we've We've got about uh, seventy some odd students most of the time uh, so that makes us either the first or second largest gunsmithing school in the u s depending from you know from semester to semester we're really close with Trinidad and Colorado mm-hmm. um, so so yeah it's it's a it's a very interesting program one we're very proud of um, so i You know, I've been director of the program for six years now. I took over from uh, from a fellow named Wayne Bernauer that was there for thirty years. He was one of my instructors. Okay. So I went through the gunsmithing school in ninety six and ninety seven, and anyway, went out and committed gunsmithing for uh, thirteen or fourteen years, and then came back to teach. I've been back uh, ten years now teaching. Oh wow! Now how how far away do students come from? Oh, all over the world. We've uh, we've actually got a student right now from Australia. Okay. Um, typically, they're all you know United States citizens, but uh, Washington State, California. Is there a demand for gunsmithing in Australia? They don't even have the right to bear arms over there. <laughs> well, they don't. Uh, they don't have handguns, but they do have a lot of long guns, and they do a fair amount of hunting over there. And this this particular guy um, grew up on a very large ranch in uh, I think South eastern australia hopefully i get that right but he did a lot of hunting for uh for pigs and for kangaroos and that mm-hmm. sort of thing so he's
0: a pretty good gun guy i just heard they're issuing a feral cat reduction in australia they've got a feral cat situation
1: as in new zealand it's yep. a war on feral cats in new zealand
0: yeah yep. we'll try to bring that to the united states as soon as possible <laughs> All those invasive
2: species are tough on, uh, especially New Zealand.
0: Yeah, what is, what's native to New Zealand? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. Nothing. Everything's exotic over yeah. there. It's a weird place. Mm-hmm. Weird mm-hmm. place. I would like to go over there just do some, do some looking.
1: Well, if you wouldn't mind, Mark, uh, give us a little backstory about the program in general. I mean, what, I'm reading a few things. I was researching ahead of time, and y'all are one of four schools in the nation that are approved to offer NRA-approved short-term gunsmithing uh, degrees, mm-hmm. um, but what makes what makes Montgomery Community College so special in terms of just you know being renowned across the country and across the world? Well, first off, there there just aren't that many gunsmithing schools total. You know, it used to be that there were
2: five or six nationwide. Now, probably twice that. Um, there there are more that are springing up, and there are a lot of schools that that have given it a shot. Uh, but it's kind of a difficult program to establish because it's expensive and there's a lot of, you know, liability. As you can imagine, most, you know, college administrations don't want to have firearms coming on and off of campus every sure. day. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's where it really fills a good niche at a small community college here in North Carolina. It works out really well. Um, but, yeah, the, the, uh, the school's been there since 1978, so it's been around a while. And the NRA affiliation was kind of an interesting thing that came around in the, the early 90s. You know, there are certain schools that, that are NRA affiliated and, and you have to go through a little bit of a, a process to be approved for that. And then we can offer these these short-term courses. Um, and, you know, we schedule all of those ourselves. It's not, um, the NRA doesn't do any of that for us. Um, so we, we find our own instructors and we schedule these classes. And, you know, the the short-term classes... Are really one of the best things we do We have some really fantastic instructors that that come and do classes in their area of expertise and they 're some of the best people in the country on those things and We find that we get a very different group of students for those classes because we get you know we get guys that can 't take two years or sometimes ladies as well that can 't take two years away from their life um, in order to come out for a regular two year gunsmithing program, but they can come and take uh, a class on a really specific topic that interests them you know cody mentioned earlier the uh, the 1022 class was a big interest for him mm-hmm. you know fantastic class we get some some really top-notch instructors for a lot of these
0: yeah uh, yeah just so you heard that right there is a ruger 1022 class on full customization fix and repair everything i guess yeah we yeah it, it's a
2: great class it's it's really an accurizing class to try to get the 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 top level of accuracy out of your uh, out of your 1022 lynn fagan that's one of our regular instructors does that does a fantastic job super meticulous guy Do, does a really good job there uh, we've got guys like herb stone uh, owns barstow barrels out mm-hmm. in south dakota um knows more about handgun barrels than probably anybody on the planet and you know, really, we we can't afford people like this unless they just want to come teach a class. And that's, yeah. you know, in in Herb's case in particular, he just likes to come out and hang out with us. So it's, um, you know, if we can cover his expenses, he'll come on, come out and do a class.
1: Yeah, that was a question I was about to ask. Is you have instructors like you said, some of the best in the world coming out. They obviously they probably live all over the place, so oh, yeah. they they fly in and travel in to come teach these courses. Absolutely, and students. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I, I taught a class just last weekend and had
2: you know a student from Houston and another one from. Uh, from out in the upper midwest somewhere i think minnesota okay um just for a class that i did and nice. um uh, you know i'm nowhere near as as well renowned as, as somebody like herb Stone or you know some of those folks sure
0: well yeah so background on why are we including uh a talk on on guns and gunsmithing into our podcast
1: beyond us just being interested beyond in we like guns <laughs> um it's an
0: american thing to like but um Guns have paved the way for conservation, um, whether anybody wants to admit it or not. The The money comes from firearm sales and things revolving around firearms, ammunition, etc. The excise tax on, on gun sales. So right now, so the current United States administration, everybody's a little concerned about, you know, firearms freedoms in the country. So firearm sales spiked as they always do around election years. Mm-hmm. And because of that, there is a surplus of conservation dollars. Mm-hmm. So that's a good thing from a conservation standpoint. And we couldn't do that without firearms. So mm-hmm. anytime firearm sales spike, ammunition spikes, you know, it's frustrating as a target shooter. You can't find twenty-two ammunition. You can't find 9 millimeters. But people are buying them as soon as they hit the shelves, and all that excise tax is going right, earmarked specifically for conservation. Yep. It's the Wildlife Restoration Act. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And so that is good news. So Mm -hmm. when you're frustrated about not being able to find your, your target ammunition or or whatever, at least you can think, well, somebody bought it and that excise tax went to a good cause. So even if you're not into guns or firearms, or you don't care to own one or hold one or touch one or work on one, um, if you're into wildlife, it's still a good thing. And so, it may not be the thing that you're into but it supports something you're into
1: yeah it's not only ammunition it's firearm sales themselves uh attachments mm-hmm. everything um i mean it's not optics though mm-hmm. yeah
0: um and we've had this we've had this conversation um before you know hunter's footing the bill but as a hunter you don't buy a ton of ammo yeah. if you're just a hunter mm-hmm. i mean i don't I'm shooting the same box of rifle shells that I've probably had for the past six years. I I just don't need it. Sure. Um, Once my gun's zeroed in and I check it every year, I shoot three, four, five, you know, hopefully six deer, and, uh, you know, that's it. So hopefully one shot per. um, A lot of these recreational shooters, they're spending, you know, buku money on Mm -hmm. ammunition, and, and that's going to something that I like. So that's wonderful. So I support it wholeheartedly and that's why we're here today we're talking about everything from the buttstock to the barrel here we're talking we're talking firearms and we're talking safety we're talking working on them and uh, how this fits into a college course
1: um i want to start if that's all right with you
0: yeah now we're good i just want to give the background on why it's important and folks that may be tuning out as soon as they heard gunsmithing program maybe they're tuning back in
1: i doubt anybody was tuning out um I want to talk about the two-year degree, and then we'll lead into the short-term classes uh, as well. But it begins off with your first semester. You're going into gunsmithing one, like your gunsmithing 101 course, followed by gunsmithing tools and uh, talking about blueprints. So, sure, the, the first semester. That the students are there,
2: they're just learning to use machines. So we have uh, lathes and milling machines, just general metal metalworking equipment that we uh, we we use daily. And someone that comes in without a background in that really needs a crash course. So yeah, one semester sure. long crash course in machining um, is really what we get first, um, so they don't touch a gun for the first semester they're there. Uh, leading into that second semester then they're working on doing some some stuff they really want to be there for so some uh uh, general repair stuff so they're getting their hands into guns starting to learn the mechanics the engineering some of the safety features that are designed into the firearms themselves and then one of the more popular classes is also that semester so rifle threading and chambering so right now the cool thing in the firearms industry is long-range rifle shooting all the cool kids want to be long-range rifle builders that's that's where guys all want to be um at the moment, anyway, that's the trend. So, doing uh, precision threadings and chamberings in you know whatever caliber they choose. A lot of we're doing a lot of 6.5 Creedmoors for long range stuff, and a lot of 338 Lapua's. Um, so a lot of stuff that people are interested in for long range shooting and and some long range hunting as well. Um, but at any rate, that's a very popular class. So they get to do their start their custom rifle builds by threading barrels onto the receivers. Um, and then, of course, they go into their third semester, which is summer. We do two two full-year mm-hmm. summer terms yeah. as well. So during the summer, then they get to put those barreled actions into stocks so that they can actually have shootable, you know, finished firearms that they can, uh, uh, that they can go out and shoot and, and understand why they spent so much money and time trying to get these barrels fitted up the way that they did, um, which is really cool, you know, to be able to see people, hey, I built something that actually mm-hmm. does a thing. Yeah, you for know. sure. We've had students that have never even built a birdhouse before, which is, you know, kind of strange to think that someone would enter a program like that that didn't, you know, hadn't built anything. Extremely technical. But to find someone, you know, take someone from that to, oh, I built something that does a thing and it's something cool. Um, That's a really neat process to see that light bulb come on. Um, So I like that a lot. And then, of course, you know, we're at the end of their first year now, moving into the second year, they started the handgun stuff, which is sort of my area of specialty. Um, so we do a handgun repair class, which is really more about understanding the mechanics and the function of the guns, um, how they work, why they work. Um, I, I'm a huge believer in understanding what's really going on mechanically. Um, and then they'll do an advanced repair class, which is, you know, more of the same sort of thing except with long guns. And then moving into their, their spring of their second year, we do uh, uh, a, a more of an advanced handgun class, so a, a custom handguns class we do a a custom 1911 build and we do some some fancy revolver stuff Um, and then at the same time they're learning metal finishing that's the opposite class they would do and then they finish up the program at the end of their two years with uh, what we call modern sporting firearms so it's more of your ar-15 ak-47 we do some fal work um sort of the stuff that's really popular right now in the industry Uh, obviously the ar is uh the most popular gun in the world or for the United States at least at this point so it'd be difficult for us to ignore that yeah, yeah sure, yeah, sure uh-huh. I mean. so so yeah that's sort of in a nutshell the quick version of what our 2 year program is yeah um we tried to run through that as quickly All right. as possible
0: question so when a student is coming into the program they they're in the program and as in a typical college course you spend your tuition money on books hmm. are they buying metal blanks and that's that's their Absolutely.
2: Yeah, we've got a pretty extensive tool and material list for things that students have to purchase. Um, And unfortunately, it is a little pricey. Yeah, sure. You know, it's the the minimum that you could probably spend on tools and materials will be about 10,000 for the two years. Um, And and most will spend more than that because they want fancier, nicer stuff. Um, But we, we really couldn't teach all the things that we teach without having those materials and sure to coming up with some cool corporate sponsor that can provide a bunch of that stuff, which we haven't been able to, yeah. to figure out yet. Although we have, we do have a lot of wonderful friends in the industry that, that give our students big discounts on things and help us okay. out in a lot of various ways. We've gotten a lot of donations from, you know, from people in the firearms industry. So I, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring that up. Yeah, if you want
1: to give them a shout out and see if you can see if you can dial up some of that money for, for the stage. i oh, sure. You, yeah. What, you can... Over the
2: years, we've gotten a lot of great donations from from people like Midway USA and um, the NRA has has given a lot of scholarship dollars sure. over the years. Um, so Remington Firearms, when they used, of course, they're out of business and changing hands at the moment. Yep. Uh, we've gotten some help from them in the past. Benelli, you know, a lot of a lot of wonderful companies have sure. have given us some help on
0: that. That's uh, that's, I, I like thinking that I'm going to school and I'm buying $10,000 worth of gun-building material. That's,
2: well, and, and not just that, a lot of tools. So yeah, if, you know, a tool, lot of our students want to own a business when they finish yeah. with us. Mm-hmm. Um, so all, all the tools and, and materials, they're not, it's not wasted dollars. You know, If you go to a traditional university and you spend $200 on a history book that you're going to use one time and maybe you can resell it for
0: $40.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you're lucky. Exactly. And you know, that's pretty much a lost cost. Yeah. You know, you're, yep. you're done with that. Um, or a sump cost but with you know with what we're doing um, you've still got some tools and you've got some materials and hopefully you have some interesting firearms when you're done
1: yeah and you've got the foundation set for your business absolutely your 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 textbook when you own your own business from college it's It's, not like that textbook is helping prop up a desk maybe (laughs) uh but (laughs) now you start this course and you've got the foundation set for the business that you plan to own and operate yeah
0: it's a lot like going to um, any mechanic type school where you purchase your tools and then when you're done you've got your tools mm-hmm. so that's i like that
2: yeah one of the questions we get a lot is what are what do students do when they leave our program you know where, where do they go and um so fi- helping guys find jobs is really one of my favorite okay, parts so you, of, you guys know.
0: do some job placement stuff.
2: absolutely yeah and I'm, i kind of operate as the clearinghouse for that usually um you know and it like i guess that makes it sound fancier than it really is but. You know, people that are interested in hiring gunsmiths will contact me. Hey, I'm looking for a person in this location. Here's what we pay. Here's here are the specifics of the job. So um, in the last six months, because of the real, you know, sort of the glut on the firearms industry right now, I've probably had more job offers than I have ever. Oh, wow, that's um, great. So it's really been good lately. And um, the biggest problem I've got right now is getting students that are willing to move to where the jobs are. Yeah. yeah. Because um, they're not, you know, everybody wants a job that's close, you know, close to home and then pays a lot of money, of course. Um you know so it, sometimes you have to be willing to uh is montgomery county flush with gunsmiths well there are a lot of, <laughs> of people who've been through the program that live in montgomery county yep. there's um, folks on our board that have been absolutely through the Gunsmithing program yep yeah so it's um there are a lot there but most of them are not active within the industry um there just isn't the economy to support a lot of gunsmiths in that area mm-hmm. um so most of the people that are making a living at it have moved off somewhere
1: um, which i mean makes sense you probably outside of Montgomery County. I mean, you get to a town and there's usually one, maybe two gunsmiths that you have to choose from and you're kind of limited. And there's so many, I mean, there's so many people that own firearms. I have one right now that needs to be worked on. I mean, I feel like it's just such a common thing. Uh, And it's, we talk a lot about things that we could do to become like better outdoors people in general. And I feel like one area of expertise that I lack is when something goes wrong with my firearm, I don't have the skill set and I don't have the tools to fix it. And I would love to be able to, but I just, I don't have it. You know, um, there's a lot, we were just talking about land management. We're planning a seminar for, um, private landowners to manage their property. And there's really one thing in Cody's slideshow when he gives that presentation is there's a lot of equipment Mm -hmm. along with the expertise. The expertise can take you so far, but there's equipment involved. And, um, that's kind of leading into my next question. If I were to walk into your shop, what I mean, you've got probably everything you know, everything that a person could need. But what the bare minimum, if you wanted to fix your simple problems on your firearms, what what tools and equipment do you need in your shop? Well, it all depends on your definition
2: of you know of of doing work and fixing things. Mm-hmm. Um, you could go anywhere from from a very basic screwdriver set, a couple punches, um, and and some really basic tools to do you know, parts changing and, and some really basic jobs all the way up to, um, you know, a complete machine shop. And, mm-hmm. and that's one thing that's interesting about gunsmithing is that there are a lot of people that use the term gunsmithing as what they do. So you've got one guy that, you know, maybe puts a set of sights on a Glock for people and hands them across the counter at a retail store and he calls himself a gunsmith. And yeah. there's someone else who's making rifle receivers from a block of steel and they're mm-hmm. using the same. So there's a lot of, a lot of territory covered with that term yeah, gunsmith. Totally. Um, so, you know, if, for myself, if if you don't need a milling machine and a lathe to do it, I'm, I'm not really considering it to be gunsmithing. Okay. But, but that doesn't mean that's, that you can't do a lot that's of That's a great
0: definition. I, I like clarifying that up front. Sure.
2: Well, and it's sort of, um, you know, the way I look at it is, is an armorer, it can change parts and they can, mm-hmm. you know, they can, just like, um, you know, your basic level mechanic, um, if you go to a regular mechanic shop. And there's a tremendous need for that. You know, there, yeah. there are plenty of people that have ordinary firearms that need you know, parts change, scopes mounted, recoil pads, things like that, on a daily basis. That's that's sort of your you know your general gun mechanic, and mm-hmm. and there's a real place for that in the world. Um, and then you've got guys that specialize in areas, um, custom rifle building. I mentioned, you know, all of my professional work was was doing handgun stuff. So I built custom 1911s for competitive shooters, um, and then we did a lot of revolver work when I worked at Bowen Classic Arms in Tennessee um, for guys that hunted. Um, Brown bears or you know went to Africa with with large caliber handguns to hunt with, so it was a really specialized niche there, and a lot of the you know the really cool gunsmithing businesses are hidden in plain sight. you know they get all their work in on the u p s truck every day, and they don't have a storefront for people to walk in mm-hmm. and they want to hide out you know it's mm-hmm. a little, little small shop, and they don't want people walking in through the door, but they 're still there, so a lot of these people you know you mentioned not knowing of many gunsmiths in the area, they're a lot more around than you realize. They just uh, don't have advertised businesses that you really see. Sure. Yeah, that's
0: that's awesome. That's a great definition of of gunsmith. Like, I change my own oil, but I'm not a mechanic. Sure. Yeah. Well, and,
2: you know, the guy that changes oil at Jiffy Lube. Yeah, and the guy who, who builds race engines down at, you know, Hendricks Motorsports are not, don't have the same job. Yeah, exactly. Even though they, they, they both call themselves mechanics. Yeah. And that's okay. And I'm not, I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. You know, there, there's a place for both of those things in the world. Yeah. For sure.
0: Yeah. So let's uh, – coming into the course, I'm assuming step one, the first thing you stress is safety. Oh, absolutely. Like before – and you said the first semester they don't touch a gun. But I assume still the first thing is, hey, when you do touch a gun – Here's what you don't do
2: oh yeah well obviously when we're you know we're operating in that sort of an environment in a college um you know safety has to be a of utmost importance um so of course we have no live ammo in the classrooms and um we have you know reasonably serious protocols on on everything um you know i've always made a personal habit for myself anytime I pick up a firearm, whether somebody hands it to me or whether I'm you know, picking up for any reason, the first thing I do is check to see if it's loaded. You know, yeah. Do a visual mm-hmm. chamber check, make sure that there's nothing in the chamber uh, before I do anything else. Um, and then, of course, all the standard stuff of you know, where's the muzzle pointed, muzzle awareness, and you know, all the standard stuff that anybody learns, well, hopefully anybody learns, whenever mm-hmm. they learn to, to operate firearms, hopefully as a kid, but even as an adult as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, we teach hunter safety here out of this office um, regularly, yearly, and uh, it's uh, something that my wife, Mikey, she was a hunter education specialist for the state for a long time, and, you know, so we we put a lot of emphasis on, you know, all those things safety-wise. It's just if you're going to continue all the things that we like to do, whether it's recreational shooting or hunting or home defense, self-defense, whatever, that's step that's the foundation for everything else. And so I figured that was uh, that's how the course went as well.
2: Oh, it has to be. And anytime you're, you're dealing with firearms, you're, you're dealing with something that's potentially fatal. Right. Um, so you have to be mindful of that on a constant basis. Um, you know, I was in West Virginia visiting family this past weekend and my, I've got a cousin that's a game warden there and he was, he was telling a story about a, an eight year old kid that was, that was shot during a turkey hunting accident oh, there okay. that he was the first responder to. Um, so I mean, it's a it's a reminder that it is you know it is something very dangerous that you have to be mindful of, mm-hmm. for sure.
1: All right, moving into because I he, we have uh, Mark brought us a sweet little pamphlet with all the short term. Yeah, the short term classes. Yeah, his <laughs> mic <might, these laughs> just fell. <fail> if you <laughs> sorry <laughs> for that. the uh, audio there.
0: <laughs> you tighten that thing down. I've got it. You got some basic tools. Yeah, right I, know. <laughs> <laughs> I got my multi tool on me, so well, that's that's good. So yeah these these guys asked me about uh, or you
2: guys asked me about um our short term classes before we started and you know, really, I think they're some of the best things we do. Not everybody can take two years out of their life to to come and take a class on gunsmithing or or do the two year program, and not everybody's interested in that. You may have a real specific area that that does interest you. Yep. Um, so we offer classes for that that are usually a week in length, although some of them are over a weekend. You know, we do some handgun shooting courses and some rifle shooting courses that are weekend long.
0: Okay. These are actually live fire. Yep, courses. absolutely. Okay. Yeah, we have
2: a range right on campus. Um, how many how many colleges do you know that have a shooting range on campus? <laughs> Not um, many, so we and it, so all these, and we we talked about you know the short term classes being you know one of our, our cool things, but people really should look through the offerings that we have just because they are just really cool stuff. Yeah,
1: I mean I'm looking through them right now. I mean it goes from rifle load reloading classes and rifle load development. That to particular work. class is an excellent one, and, and
2: I think for hunters especially would be an interesting one. Um, Billy Athia that that teaches for us does that particular class, and and he really does an excellent job of going through. Uh, the reloading process to develop, you know, the, the most accurate loads that you can come up with for your particular rifle. Um, so from a hunting aspect, that's a really cool class.
1: Yeah, that was going to be my next question is for somebody, a layman like myself, or maybe somebody listening who loves sh- hunting, loves using their firearms um, for a specific pers- purpose as a layman, what classes in this in this pamphlet are like great beginner classes that can make you a better sportsman, and you know could benefit anybody. Well, so that class would be an excellent one, obviously.
2: Sure, um, we do some some basic. Uh, what we call basic gunsmithing for rifle and shotgun, um, that would really get you through the mechanics of how your gun functions. Okay. Um, so say you're a duck hunter and you've got a Benelli shotgun, and you, you know at the end of the season you'd like to be able to tear it down all the way so you can get all the river mud out of yeah. it. And, um, you know that that sort of class would be an excellent one for that. Um, okay. Some of the AR-15 armors courses that we do are really good for a basic AR owner, and and there are millions of those out there now. Um, that just wants to be able to do normal things to their to their AR-15. Um, you know, that's a really good offer. Yeah, the
1: ability to tear down your shotgun or anybody else's shotgun. There's so much. There's so yeah, much differentiation between
0: systems, gas versus inertia versus, you know, you know, manually operated.
1: So you get comfortable with one. Like the first gun that I had was a Remington 11 1187 which has got shims and pieces and it's just, um, you can break it down into a hundred pieces and now I have a, a super black Eagle, which is, you know, like 12. It's easier, yeah. 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 And it, it's real common
2: that we get, um, guns in pieces from people that have taken them apart and can't get it back together. Yeah. We, we call it a bag O gun. Um, so you, <laughs> so you get a bag O gun from somebody <laughs> and they always say, Oh yeah, my brother-in-law took this apart. I told him not to do it. And uh-huh. okay, well, when your brother-in-law, you know, <laughs>
0: Have you found that YouTube has uh, l- caused the college to lose business? No, not at all. Okay.
2: No, I would say it's a double edged sword because um, there is a lot of information on YouTube, but a lot of it's bad. Um, you know, I, I have students all the time that are pulling up some video of a disassembly or reassembly, and somebody's doing it incorrectly. Um, But there is also just such a large amount of information that I think it probably drives people to us in a lot of ways because they take an interest and they decide they need some some better training, so they come out to us.
0: Okay. Yeah, that makes good sense. Yeah, just some of the courses, like some of the ones that I've saw, like there's some artistry involved. Mm -hmm. like I would say most most gunsmiths that like to take a, a, a bare blank of steel and go to a finished product, have some artistry in them they're, they they like the look of the finished product i mean there's grip stippling 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 stippling, uh, yeah. stippling. i call yeah i want to make sure i wasn't mispronouncing that you know just things things like that that you can take it from a tool to a work of art um, there's classes for for that and i think that would interest people that maybe aren't that interested in guns but they're interested in the the art
2: yeah. Stock checkering is a good example mm-hmm. of the artistic side. Um, we not we're not offering it this year, but we've done a lot of metal engraving classes in the past.
0: Um, One of our board members took a metal engraving class mm-hmm. there and actually donated a handgun that he engraved for a raffle. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that kind of stuff. You
2: know, I'm, I'm not much of an artist. I figured out pretty quickly that I'm, I'm a much better mechanic than I am an artist. Um, so, I, but I really have a tremendous appreciation for what those folks do that that can really do the artistic side of it. The other place that that a lot of artistic stuff comes in are in our knife making classes.
0: Right, so that's we do great segue. Yeah, yep. we
2: do. We do a lot of knife making classes too that are separate from the gunsmithing program, but still sort of affiliated. Um, and those are really cool things we bring in some cool guys for that as well and you know what i what I always tell people is if you know if you can't get excited about heating a piece of metal red hot and beating it with a hammer you got to turn in your man card right there because uh-huh. um, it's just it's interesting it's fun there's a lot of artistry that goes into that um, we've got a lot of cool classes coming up for that we've got a chef knife chef knife class where you know make a kitchen knife okay you know, really nice kitchen knife we do a tomahawk forging class you know that's just super cool. You know, there could be a
1: whole class on sharpening your knives. We've had that in the past, yeah. See, I do you guys knife. ever
0: offer one on using ratchet straps? I feel like that needs to be... I want to sign up for that class. <laughs> <laughs> I got a I I list of people I need to send to that class. Uh, <laughs> gee, that, that should be a college course, ratchet straps. I'll, I'll come teach it. I'll volunteer. <laughs> Tie downs 101. <laughs> Tie downs 101. But no. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. That, sharpening a knife, that is a, that is a skill that I think has been lost... With the advent of the pull-through sharpener, which if, if you if you offer to sharpen my knife on a pull-through sharpener, I might punch you in the face. Just, <laughs> dude, I got an expensive knife. Do not pull it through your $4 pull-through sharpener that you sharpen kitchen shears with.
2: It's really interesting talking to some of the serious knife makers about sharpening knives. Because um, they really... It, to them, it's a science. They, oh, sure. You know, they've looked at knives in microscopes. They've looked at edges in microscopes. They, they do all these tests where they take these big diameter hemp ropes, and they have to slice it so mm-hmm. many times before the knife gets dull. Um, they really understand what, what the edge is supposed to do and how it needs to be shaped, and it's really interesting to, to talk to them about that.
0: Yeah, I, I would be fascinated. Like One of my favorite shows, we talk about crazy TV shows that we watch, Forged in Fire, mm-hmm. one of my favorite shows on television. Those guys, now, granted, they're working under a ridiculous time constraint, Uh but those guys that work on that show are geniuses, all of them.
2: We actually had one of the winners from that show come to a class for us. (laughs) Uh, That's awesome. Liam Hoffman, he's a young guy from from western North Carolina, does a lot of axes. Um, He came out and and taught a class a couple years ago, and I I talked to him quite a bit. I was really impressed with him for his age, Mm -hmm. really mature, really smart, um, and just a good example of, you know, kind of stuff we can do.
0: That's a, so you get the opportunity to be with that caliber of craftsmen and be instructed by that caliber of craftsmen in these in these classes and that's that's yeah that's and the other thing unbelievable
1: I, 100% the other thing that I wanted to bring up was you know we were talking about some of these classes and what you can what you can hope to achieve and the things that, how you can better yourself these are it, as an example, you talked about the basic gunsmithing shotgun course being like a great course for somebody who just wants to work on their own gun. That is from July sixteenth to July eighteenth, and it's one hundred and forty six dollars. It's a weekend, and it's one hundred and forty six dollars. And you go out, go out and get you can't go to a baseball game for one hundred and forty six dollars. Yeah, I mean you can't. Yeah. And
0: what by, by the time you get a hot dog, and, and what did one, you gain from that other than frustration of parking and a crappy hot dog? <laughs>
2: <laughs> you know, well, in one way, I think that that actually hurts our classes sometimes, that they're a little too cheap. Um, because people are scared
0: p- off by it. Mm-hmm. P-
2: people think that, you know, there's that perception of, of quality that if you're not mm-hmm. paying a lot that it, it can't be, sure, can't be very that. good. Sure, I have yeah. And, uh, and the reason that we can do our classes as inexpensively as we can is that we get a little bit of, of kickback from the state. Um, being what, a community yeah, college. Being a community college, yeah. What we, we call, it, you know, uh, full-time enrollment, FTE dollars, um, you know, just the – the quick version of that was about.
0: Montgomery ever Montgomery Tech or was it always Montgomery Community College?
2: I think in the early days it was it was Montgomery Technical College. I went to
0: Haywood and it was Haywood Tech, mm-hmm. and then the FTE uh, became available, and so they went to a community college uh, standard so that so that they could offer courses cheaper, and guys like me could go, mm-hmm. you know, guys that couldn't afford to go to a you know four year school or whatever, and, and same quality, just you know more affordable for your regular human. And so, yeah, I think that's wonderful. And people should not be scared off by the uh, by the cost at all.
1: Uh, let's talk about you for a minute. So your background, you're, I'm looking through your pamphlet. You've got a handful of classes that you teach as well, along with being the director and helping people find jobs. Um, two are Smith & Wesson classes, and then the other one's just kind of more of like a handgun, general handgun from what I see, mm-hmm. I think. So how did you get into that world and... I guess handguns are your specialty. So, talk a little bit about your your history.
2: Well, just the quick, ver- the real quick version, because I'm not all that interesting. But oh, come um,
1: on <laughs> I grew up in West Virginia, and I grew up deer hunting
2: and and you know shooting stuff. So, um, you know, I never had real conventional interests. I, I learned how to read out of gun magazines, and really never was was. Um, Interested in anything else? I didn't, you know, wasn't a basketball player. I wanted to be a gun guy. Mm-hmm. So um, when I was a, a teenager, I met an older guy that was a gunsmith and asked him, "Well, how do I do what you do?" And, and he said, "Well, first off, uh, forget about it and go to law school. And if you're not, if you don't do that, um, go take some machining courses at a Votech school. And if if you like that, then you can worry about finding a gunsmithing school." So I, I followed that advice and you know got some machining training and then went to gunsmithing school where I teach now in Montgomery. Um, so I was. A so student. you found it
0: from West Virginia. You came. to, yep. Okay. Yeah,
2: and and you know, of course, back in you know '95 when I was in high school and trying to trying to figure that out, the internet wasn't quite yeah. as available as it is now. So, um, you know, we we found I found some advertisements for the school in a magazine, and you know, called them up and got some information and went down to visit. So I I started there in '96 and um, finished up and went to work in uh, for Clark Custom Guns in Shreveport, Louisiana for four and a half years, and then um, from there, I went to work at, at Bowen Classic Arms in Tennessee for, for eight and a half years, um, and I, I continued, I had a small business of my own at the same time, doing 1911 and 2011s for competitive shooters. I was a real serious competitive handgun shooter for a long time, and then uh, I came back here in 2011, so it'll be 10 years next month. Um, my old instructor invited me to come back and apply for a teaching position. It seemed like a good idea, so, so I did that, and it's been a good ride. So I, you know, he retired six years ago. So I've been been running the program since.
0: Okay. That's all a right. Cody's,
1: Cody's going to know more about this than I do. But for people like me, when you say I'm serious competitive handgun shooter, tell me a little bit about that. Tell me what kind of shots y'all are making sure. when you're when you're a solid competitive handgun shooter.
2: Well, uh, there are all sorts of different competitions available for different types of firearms and different interests. Um, one thing in shooting sports that really I've been amazed at over the years is how people of like personalities end up playing the same games. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I have shot the most of is is USPSA pistol shooting. So it's um, sort of a scenario-based uh, rapid-fire shooting. So you're we're shooting quickly, running around, moving between targets. Um, it's pretty you know pretty fast-paced and fun um and you tend to get like a lot of the um type a personalities real competitive guys um shot a lot of three gun stuff as well
0: three gun i like three gun that's fun
2: three guns a great time um it's just a lot of gear to keep up with a lot of
0: stuff and a lot of stuff to do maintenance (laughs)
2: explain three gun
0: so you have it's rifle pistol shotgun Uh um
2: and it's it's mainly you know air quotes here um combat based, you know, uh-huh. sort of the, the idea, um, you're moving quickly, shooting targets with the rifle. It's anywhere from three yards to 300 yards. Normally, um, <laughs> the shotgun stuff, it's, it's, um, knocking over a lot of little steel plates with a shotgun or, or shooting slugs sometimes out to 150 yards. So. Oh, geez. Um, and then, then of course, handgun stuff would be anything from, from three yards to 50 yards at, you know, paper and steel targets. Um, so, it, you know, I did that real seriously for a long time. I used to shoot 35 weekends a year or so. No kidding. You um, were
0: full-time. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I was. I never did it, obviously, for a living, but I, I shot all the time. Um, and then, of course, you know, life life gets in the way of all your hobbies. You get married and have kids <laughs> and that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So, um, But I've always been a hunter, um, and I, I've always taken a, a month or two off of, of shooting in the wintertime to, to hunt. Um, and now I'm kind of coming around full circle. I'm shooting less these days, and I'm getting more interested in outdoor stuff again. So – paddling and hunting more and that side that sort of thing and i've got a got a five-year-old that i'm trying to get into the outdoors there you so.
0: go, good, good age good age that's awesome um you uh so sam are you so you know the show we watch alone yeah the kind of the hosts when they do the like after talks colby whatever uh-huh with Just a really white teeth white yeah. teeth mm-hmm. so he also hosts another show that i'm sure you're familiar with top shot mm-hmm.
2: um yeah and actually um I knew several competitors that were on top shot uh, guys, guys that I'd shot with some, um, Chris Tilley from over in Raleigh was on mm -hmm. there. Um, a couple other guys that I, that I knew, you know, well enough to talk to at at competitions and stuff. were on that show.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes. If you want to get a feel for what's, what's up, what he's talking about, mm -hmm. you should watch top shot.
2: Okay. Well, and that one was, you know, sort of a made for TV
0: version. Yep. Definitely more dramatic.
2: Yeah. It's, it's a lot different than, than what we were really doing for, for shooting competitions. Mm -hmm. But, um, but yeah, it's that sort of thing. And like all the gunsmithing shows that were on several years ago, the, the Red Jacket guys, yep. and the, you know, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't stand to watch those shows because they <laughs> were, you know, what, what they were doing was so terrible most of the time. But, but we found that it drove a lot of students to us as, as far oh, as the I'm school. Oh, I'm sure.
0: I'm sure it created uh, business.
2: Absolutely. And uh, so, you know, it's it, like, again, just like YouTube, it's a double-edged sword.
0: Yeah, Red Jacket. I lived in Louisiana also for a while and went and visited Red Jacket and was less than impressed with Red Jacket.
1: (laughs) But Okay, Uh, is there any – when it comes to gun repair, when it comes to gun maintenance and everything, I would assume that a big part of the course or at least a mantra that you would follow would be preventative measures so that you don't have to get your gun repaired. So what are, what are some tips that you have for a gun owner about like, do you, after every, say you got a duck gun or something after every season, you need to break it down all the way and give it a full clean or, um, like what are some tips that you have from problems that you've seen from sportsmen that you're like, you could easily not have this problem if you did X? Yeah.
2: Well, the number one thing that, you know, any of the repair shops will tell you is, is guns that are just so dirty, they can't function. Okay. Um, you know, it, it, it would be like not changing your oil for, you know, 40,000 miles or something. Yeah, um, You know, you, it's, uh, I would say certainly with a duck gun, something that's going to be out in, in the, you know, the elements um, a lot needs to be broken down probably more than once a season. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say definitely at the end of the season, break everything down, do a complete strip, clean everything, relubricate, um, But just basic lubrication of moving parts. Um, you know, there's no machine that that functions well without some sort metal, of lubrication. metal needs
0: some lube yeah. correct
2: absolutely and just those kind of basics cleaning your guns and lubricating them would would you know benefit everyone tremendously and would probably do away with you know the biggest part of of, of what a repair shop sees other than just um, bad ammunition being another one um, and neglect of in general
1: when it comes to lubrication you know one thing that i've seen with the two guns, the two shotguns that I've used really throughout my whole life. The eleven eighty seven, I feel like I could just hose that baby down with lubrication. And then I got this Benelli. That was just me being somebody that I like didn't know any better. It just, you know, I wasn't a part of the gun world at all. I just had this shotgun that I got for my fourteenth birthday or thirteenth birthday. Um, and then I got this Benelli and it comes with a special lubricant and it's like one drop here, one drop there. That's all you need. And that was like a a moment for me where I was like, have I been doing this wrong? My, can you over lubricate? Oh, of um, course. Yeah. yeah.
2: Yeah. You can, you know, <laughs> when you shoot and you've got oil splattering off your shooting glasses, <laughs> that's, that's probably an indication. Um, I tend to, to be more likely to over lubricate than under. Uh-huh. Um, I would rather go that direction. Um, and you know, specifically, you mentioned that Benelli shotgun. They're They're what I call the Glock of shotguns. They're very reliable. They tend to work you know, that, that, uh, recoil operated system that they, that they use is, is an incredibly reliable version. Mm-hmm. Um, so they don't tend to require as much lubrication as some of the other platforms. Sure. Um, you know, lubrication is a, we could almost do a whole show just on that if you really wanted to geek out on it. Um, but you know, what people ask me for years as a gunsmith, you know, what's your professional opinion? What gun lube should I be using? What do you use? And I always I always used to say, well, whatever they're giving away at the, the NRA convention this year, that's what I'm using. Um, and I decided that probably wasn't a very good answer, so I needed to research it a little more. So I spent a little time talking to some uh, oil engineers, and, and what I've come up with now, things that, like if I'm disassembling a firearm for for routine maintenance, things that i clean on a regular basis i'm lubricating with a medium viscosity gun oil um fp10 is the the current one i'm using that has a little bit of a um, um, solvent in it to help break up carbon Um, especially high round count guns you know when i shot competitively i would shoot 25,000 rounds a year some years unbelievable um so you know, obviously there's a lot of cleaning going on and a lot of dirty guns. Um, So something that, a solvent that helps break, you know, helps break up carbon a little bit's a good thing. Um, But places that I don't lubricate on a regular basis when I take the gun apart, um, I'm using a sort of a a grease um, because it stays there. You know, obviously oil is a liquid. You put it on something, stand it up in your gun safe for a year. It's probably going to run away Mm -hmm. or at least a, a significant portion of it is. Grease tends to stay in place the caveat to that that you have to be a little bit careful with with greases is that uh, number one they attract dirt but and that's not the worst problem the, the biggest thing to watch out for is uh, to get a grease that's low temperatures for a hunting gun, yeah. because some of the some of the greases will freeze up in cold weather um you yeah, my favorite story there i used to work with a guy when i was in louisiana i went on an elk hunt in colorado and uh mm. anyway good southern boy cleaned his gun real well greased everything before he left you know he thought it might snow and get cold well he ended up out there hunting and they got a bad cold front and it was below zero and sees the elk pulls the trigger nothing happens pulls the trigger nothing happens and reaches up and touches the back of the striker on his Remington 700 and then it fires and he kills the elk oh Um, luckily he kept it in his crosshairs and still pointed at it but but the point is that that you know some greases can freeze um, because of the thickeners that are in there um they get stiff in the cold, but you know, for a, for a hunting based show like you guys, that's something I would definitely lubricate, but watch
1: the, the low temperature. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I went with that 1187 to Oklahoma in 2017, 18, right. in like kind of the turn of the year. And I had cleaned my gun before, but I ended up, it was so cold. It was, you know, close to zero. And I ended up having to shoot and then I would have to take a break and breathe into my chamber to loosen everything up it was getting so cold that it would freeze and I was having to heat it up with breath uh, yeah. which is a terrible you know terrible plan but I mean I had to do what I had to do no good yeah that's no good <laughs> yeah it's oh, no yeah, it awful and I'm putting water in there which is making it freeze up worse so
0: WD-40 how you feel about WD-40 as a lubricant is terrible
1: as a rust
2: preventative, it's actually pretty good. Okay. Um, so, you know, it, and that's what it's for, you know, water dispersing number 40 was the, you know, was the terminology mm-hmm. the military came up with for that. So it's, um, you know, it, if you just wanted a rust preventative and that's it, it's a great product, but I don't use it for lubricants and it tends to turn into shellac over time. So if you, you know, my, I inherited some guns from my granddad and he must've had stock in the in the wd-40 company oh, everybody's
0: granddad everybody's granddad was a wd-40 man yeah
2: they were completely full of shellac to the point that they wouldn't function after 30 or 40 years of, really of being put away with you know without it but they weren't rusted so
0: rim oil that's the basic one that everybody can buy
2: rim oil is pretty thin but it uh but i like it pretty well and i use it a lot because you can buy it in an aerosol can and it you know it works pretty well
0: Yep. yep uh i try to buy the vanilla oil for all my stuff but yeah I've definitely got a can of rimmel sitting on top of the safe and use it all the time. So so the end of the season you've cleaned your gun, storing a firearm for a season until next year. What does someone who is not a avid shooter but they sh- shoot a little bit what do they need to do? Well, um, rifle for a rifle, I guess.
2: Just just clean it well like you normally would. Um, I usually leave a little bit of a, a film of oil inside the bore of a rifle. Um, stick it in the gun safe. Just watch the humidity of your gun safe. That's, that's an important one here in the south especially. Okay. You know, we've got obviously humid temperatures. Um, but inside a, you know, uh, an air-conditioned house, it's usually not so bad. But, um, but just keep an eye on the humidity level inside your safe. And, yeah. and really, it's not
0: that bad um, if you can, you can store them that way. Yeah, I think that's that's what I do. So at least I've been doing something right.
1: So you've transitioned into from being super serious about shooting into kind of more of an avid outdoorsman in the last few years, and you got hooked up with us. And I don't. We were talking ahead of time, and I didn't want to spoil anything, so I started asking, and then bit my tongue. How did you hear about the Land Trust? Actually, from your website, um, I had been down to
2: Low Water Bridge to do some fishing and paddling, and uh, you know saw the the Land Trust signs on the trees and okay who are these guys and uh you know checked out the website and happened to see that uh that the sportsman's access program was right there on the website and was like oh well, that's a super cool property i'd really like to hunt on that so um so from there i i think i was the second year of the sportsman's access program that i i was about to say in. what's
1: your what's your number <sighs>
2: 114 yeah or something you're something early like that. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. you're early on yeah so that's starting at number zero would be the our number one would be the first member that ever joined the program so 114 we're in the probably 500s now in terms of people that have been in it so that means you were you were in the good old days when you pretty much put in a draw and you got a draw every single time
2: yeah the first year i think i got everything i put in for <laughs> yeah.
0: you've had some good hunts out there too
1: i have
2: yeah um you know i i have uh killed a couple does out there at at, at low water bridge and and uh, i've seen a number of bucks i haven't shot any anything um didn't see anything that i thought was big enough that i wanted to wanted to tag it but um but yeah i've had some great hunts out there I, I like it a lot i hunt mostly on public land when i'm not mm-hmm. when i'm not on you guys properties mm-hmm. um because i'm i don't like hunting over bait um yep. not that i'm have a problem with anybody else who does that but that's a whole debate you know for another day um it just isn't the way that i prefer to hunt so um, the fact that you guys' properties are sort of managed like the like the national forests are, and they have to hunt in the same ways, and actually look for sign and find critters, um, especially
1: at Low Water Bridge.
2: Yeah, I like that, and it and it reminds me a lot more of the terrain that I grew up in in West Virginia. Sure, mm-hmm. um, you know, kind of makes me makes me a little homesick yeah. sometimes when I do that. So, it's definitely um, a mountain.
0: It, yeah, it's it's rug- I would call it rugged for for Central North Carolina for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah and
2: it's it's a great little property. I really enjoy it.
0: Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, that's how, actually how we. We started talking every year. We, you know, Mark, and, and he'd reach out and say, you know, how's it going at low water? Um, what's up? And that's, 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 how I, that's how I knew Mark. Uh, so, yeah, and didn't even know then that you were uh, even affiliated with, with the program there at MCC or anything. I had no idea.
2: Yeah, so I got to make sure and tell
0: everybody whatever you do, don't put in for Block Four, <laughs> Low Water Bridge. It's no good. Block Two is where they want to be, right, Sam? Yeah, Block Two is great. <laughs> block Two is great. They're all good. Yeah, I've, I think I've killed a deer on every block yeah i like i like low water low water is good
1: so what is for somebody who's um a gunman through and through when you're going out hunting deer hunting what do you shoot
2: it all depends it's it's sort of like um you know what shirt do you want to wear today because i you know i've got a lot for me being a gun guy what i hunt with is almost as important as as going hunting Uh uh-huh. um so i mean it's it's really sort of a hodgepodge i've got some you know a a 308 winchester model 70 that i've rebarreled and done stuff too that i like a lot for local hunting around here i do some handgun hunting i do uh i do hunt with a ruger Blackhawk and 44 magnum sometimes That's so good. it's it's a hodgepodge i like muzzleloader season a lot um just because of the you know it's closer to the rut and it's a good time to be in the woods oh, it's a great time to be in the woods. yeah we
0: spent some muzzleloader weeks out there mm-hmm. side by side before <laughs> i don't i don't miss it for anything um yeah, that's that's kind of where I wanted to go with with questions. Sam. Go on, please. Take it. Um so since you're you're I would say you consider your expertise handguns, um what is a great revolver hunting revolver for someone? What's a, what's a recommendation of a hunting revolver for deer-sized game?
2: It'd be really hard to beat the uh what I mentioned the Ruger Blackhawk and 44 Magnum or, you know, I would say 357 Magnum being a minimum. Um but with handguns, it's it's a little bit different, um, and, and this is something that that most people tend to miss. You you tend to be more successful with non-expanding bullets that have sharp corners on the front of them. So, um, you know, semi-wad cutter styles or like an LBT style flat nose. So it's a lot more like bow hunting in the way that you're just you know drilling a caliber size hole, and then letting out blood. Um, more like you're doing with damage with a broadhead mm-hmm. because you don't get that same sort of hydrostatic shock that you do with a rifle. Right. Um, so it's it's a little bit different sort of game, and and most people that try to hunt with um, you know traditional hollow pointed bullets for in handguns are usually it's usually not quite as effective. Um, and as you get toward larger critters, when you start talking about elk and things like that, it's it's a whole different game. You, okay. know, you really have to have some penetration for bigger bigger critters. I
0: found that with with pigs i've shot a lot of pigs with handguns um over the years through work and um yeah i've definitely found that uh round nose bullets are the way to go Uh, i've not i've shot away from hollow points altogether Mm -hmm. They just do not they're not effective um but yeah what about in a uh semi-automatic handgun what would you recommend for hunting and i will preface this by saying please don't ruin my burst my bubble here because i have a springfield armory ronin 10 millimeter on order so
2: well if i were going to hunt with a semi-auto i probably would go either with a 10 millimeter or um or the 460 rolling which is like a length and mm-hmm. uh, 45 acp um and and we've got a my students are all nuts about 10 millimeters right now yeah they're popular. Um, it, it goes through there's a like a eight or ten year cycle it comes back around every eight or ten years um but yeah 10 millimeter with the right with the right bullets is is an excellent choice if you're going to use a
0: semi-auto Good deal. Okay, I want to, <laughs> to confirm. Just confirming, so I didn't have buyers your, remorse. Your later. bubbles intact. <laughs> yep, I didn't want to have buyers remorse later. Um, I uh, I currently carry a uh, a judge pretty often, um, forty five long Colt. I like it, but one ten millimeter. Um, favorite bolt action rifle platforms. Um, gunsmiths can argue this, sure. spe- especially gunsmiths as we define them can argue this for days and weeks but i would assume it's either going to be remington 700 or winchester model 70
2: well as far as from an accuracy standpoint the the 700 style receivers and there are lots of manufacturers that are making a 700
0: footprint you know yeah extractor calls yeah the same
2: yeah they, those are those are go- it's definitely going to win the day on on accuracy um i'm a model 70 fan just because i like them and i like the you know the claw extractor and the the uh, um, controlled round feeding aspect but mm-hmm. but really that's and from a hunting aspect that's fine but in pure accuracy terms it's definitely going to go toward a push feed round receiver okay so know.
0: that's something i did not know i did not know that Remington 700 is going to be what people are leaning towards.
2: Or at least that style, yeah. There are lots of custom actions now that are are based on that.
0: Um, Let's see. Okay, basic shotgun maintenance question from a duck hunter standpoint and something I think that probably most – I know three of us in this room own Benelli's. Um, Addie's sitting here too. She's grinning. Um, I have found that the only thing I have an issue with on my Benelli is the choke tubes, rust – overnight inside the threads doesn't matter and i put i put choke tube grease on them and clean them up well the barrel's clean i mean i'm very ocd about about cleanliness on anything but especially my firearm and so it's all clean i won't even hunt with it won't get wet it'll sit in the safe i'll take it out you know go to change choke tubes from say from going to shoot trap to going turkey hunting Choke tube thru- threads and where the choke tube rests inside the barrel is rusted. What's up with that? Super common problem. Um, you know, it happens on
2: every manufacturer's choke tube. It's not not specific, yeah, not specific to Donelli, sure. Um, using the the choke tube grease is a good thing. Um, that you know that lubricant that they yep, the that they sell for that. Whatever, yeah. I, I don't use a lithium grease. That that sort of black molly based stuff is what I would prefer. Um, that's a big help. Um, or or use um, anti seize compound. Yeah, like anti seize is what I'm using. Yeah, any just seize. something like you'd use on a spark on a plug. Yep. Although the the anti seize doesn't have a lot of rust preventative properties. Um, so us something that helps with rust prevention a little bit. Um, there are some aftermarket tubes that are all stainless that would help a lot. Um, but it's but you know going from the other side. If you have one stuck, what do you do about it? You know, if you can't budget with your wrench, uh, there's a product called Croil, K R O I L. Okay. It's a just a um, you know, a, a penetrating oil that really penetrates extremely well. And I've had really good luck getting stuff out with that. That's been stuck that I couldn't get out any other way.
0: that um, something you can buy. Where do you buy that at? You got to order it. You can order it. But uh, I
2: think every once in a while you'll see it in an auto parts store, but for the most part you need to order it. But you can buy a can of it, uh, pour it into a container cup or something, stand a shotgun barrel up vertically in it, muzzle down. And it, it tends to work really well for getting st- stuck choke tubes out.
1: Huh. I've uh, I think I've got a question that pertains to you as well because I think your Benelli shoots straight out the box, shot a little bit high with a with a aftermarket extra full choke tube. Uh huh. Yes. Yeah, mine as well. Um, what can what can a gun owner do about do about that? Is there anything that you can do, or you have to take it to a blacksmith who knows what they're doing? Well, so it depends. So when in the
2: case of of shotguns, especially for like wing shooting,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, there's not not a rear sight per se. Your eye is the rear sight. Yeah. So positioning your eye differently is going to change where the shotgun mm-hmm. hits. So generally, because you're resting your your cheek or your face on the stock positioning your face on the stock is what's going to move your eye in relation to the rest of the gun. So putting a, um, in the case of Benelli, they've got those wedges that you can put between the receiver and the stock that changes the angle of the butt stock to the mm-hmm. receiver would be a way to go. Um, what I really prefer are, is going to be a stock that has an adjustable cheek piece or an adjustable comb on it that you can move mm-hmm. so that you can really, you know, in essence, sight the shotgun in um,
1: so that you can get it to, to shoot where you're pointing. Does your, does your gun have a rear sight? My shotgun? yeah, uh-huh. No uh uh-huh. so my my it's got a center bead it's got that center bead and then the front bead and when it's dialed in like if i line it up even on bags or whatever and i put it dead center of the center bead to the end it still shoots high so with the the center bead type type shotguns the idea
2: theoretically there is that you stack them and make a figure eight out of it. okay okay um, although in your case if you're if you're doing that it would make it worse uh-huh um, what i would recommend for especially for like a turkey
0: shotgun is, uh-huh. is to put some
2: some rifle sights on the barrel sure
0: okay. yeah we've We've discussed this at length over missing turkeys. Mm -hmm. Um, And I will tell you a a funny anecdote, and kids don't try this at home, but my shotgun, I shoot very poorly if I'm not chewing tobacco when I shoot because that is my adjustable cheek piece, (laughs) just uh, as a side note there. But um, anyways. I don't think I knew that. What, yeah, what size child do
2: you
1: need to get? It? Yeah, all there's, <laughs> a it's a, it's a, there's a size. It takes all exactly about three fingers. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, no, that's that's a fact, and that, it was that way. Even uh, even shooting in high school, when I shot competitively in high school, that was. I, uh,
2: I've heard of Kentucky windage, but that must be that must be uh, <laughs> Car- Yakin <Yadkin> River windage, <laughs> Carolina
0: Carolina stock piece there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's a fact. That, yeah, that's true. So if I'm woodcock hunting. Yeah, it's got to be all day. Got to have, got to keep it running just in case one gets up so I don't miss.
1: When you moved to – you moved from West Virginia, you came to school here. You never left uh, North Carolina since – oh, wait, you went to Louisiana. Yeah, I went to Louisiana and Tennessee.
2: Uh-huh. So I, I lived in East Tennessee for a long time.
1: What brought you back to North Carolina beyond just work? Work, yeah. Uh-huh. That
2: was um, – you know, I, I got a call, you know, hey, why don't you apply for this teaching position. It uh-huh. sounded really interesting. So that's why I'm here. And it, and it it's worked out well. I've, I've enjoyed being here.
1: Montgomery County is just – I love Montgomery County. I love the Uwari region. Mm-hmm. Um, you've gotten in the last few years into more diverse outdoor activities, paddling and stuff. What are some of your, you don't have to stop spot burn or anything, but if you have any like common knowledge spots that you've really enjoyed in the last few years, taking your ch- your son, I mean, paddling, obviously mm-hmm. on the Uwari River over there at Low Water Bridge, but places like that that you've really come to enjoy.
2: Yeah, we've done a couple paddle, paddled a couple sections of Uwari. Um, actually trying to get out to, uh, on the other side there to go to, to Falls, um, the Narrows, mm-hmm. paddle up that direction. Mm-hmm. That's a really cool place. Um, hiking um, um, out there off of uh, um, Tothill Road. Uh-huh,
1: um, yeah, the, the URI, URI Trail. trail. URI, I've
2: done you know, several sections of the URI Trail. I haven't done the, the long hike that you guys do. Um, so yeah, just just general places around. I do a fair amount of trail running because I like to, I like you know, in Troy, there are a lot of local trails. Sure. Um, so I try to run on the trails when I can.
1: You gonna do the Uori Mountain Run? No, probably not. <laughs>
2: that's,
1: that's brutal. I yeah, hear.
2: I haven't. Uh, I, ha- I used to do five Ks and stuff. Uh-huh. I haven't done that in years. It'd probably be a tough one. Yeah,
1: <laughs> it'd be a brutal
0: one for sure. Be somebody chasing me, <laughs> chasing me hard to yeah. do that run. But I
2: do want to do your through hike
0: sometime. That you really should. S- that you sounds should like a good time. Yeah, I think you'd you'd enjoy it a lot. You'd be good at it too. For people
1: who don't know what that is, we do a four day. 40-mile backpacking trip, so 10 miles per day on the Uwari Trail, which is a trail that was uh, used to be a full, contiguous 40-mile trail. And then as everything tends to – what tends to happen to everything, it got fragmented by private ownership, and um, the handshake agreements fell apart. Um, And the Land Trust and Crystal, our director of conservation, over the last eight years or nine years has worked very hard to reconnect that trail – and we are one piece we are one piece away from reconnecting the forty mile trail and hope to hope to finish that soon and then it'll all be public and you can do it so for right now, the only thing you have to do is you have to bypass that one section on the road for a little bit, but we're working hard on that, and that's just kind of one of the things that we do. but if you're interested in that sort of thing, go to our website and sign up.
0: All right, let's talk about what I've been waiting on, yeah, meat it's the steak time of the podcast so and these are, this is super popular right now, and they're not unattainable, um, suppressors. And I'll start by letting you define suppressor versus Hollywood's silencer and what's legal versus what's not.
2: Okay. So suppressors are a big topic now, and we call them, you know, sort of people in the industry call them suppressors as opposed to silencers, which is the traditional term, and that's how still the ATF defines it. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically think of it like a muffler for your car. So Hiram Maxim, when he invented the, the the silencer or suppressor, he also invented the muffler for a car, and they work in very much the same way there 's a series of baffles that cools and slows the air that 's coming from the muzzle um, to quieten the report a little bit so sort of the, there are a couple of big misconceptions: number one is that they 're illegal, which is not true. You have to pay a two hundred tax and you have to wait for an extensive background check, submit fingerprints and photographs, and all that sort of thing in order to to own one, but they 're certainly attainable. Um, and what's interesting is that the, you know, this was came out of the 1934 Gun Control Act, um, when machine guns were regulated and other things, uh, suppressors were on that on that same legislation. So interestingly, the $200 tax that you have to pay to purchase or transfer a suppressor is the same amount that it was in 1934. Mm. They've never changed the tax amount. So let's keep that quiet and not tell them to do it. Mm-hmm. Because yep. in you know in 1934 dollars, $200 was a tremendous amount of money. Mm-hmm. Um, it'd probably be like 5000 now. But luckily, they've never changed that tax amount. So $200, not having a lot less buying power than it did before, it, it's become pretty reasonable. Um, so it's become a very popular thing. I think um, I remember I heard a... A number where uh, there was something like 1.3 million suppressors sold in the state of texas alone in 2020 good old wow. texas um, so it's it's very popular and most of the states are allowing them for hunting now so that's you know that's something that's very interesting the other big misconception is that people have seen um you know mobster movies or gangster movies on tv and they think they're going to get that little you know hollywood quiet yeah. sound uh-huh. and for the most part that's not the case you're right. going to getting you're going to get a much quieter sound um, any bullet that breaks the sound barrier is still going to make a sonic boom, just like an airplane does. So you're going to get a very loud crack in the air somewhere forward of the shooter, even if uh, you know even if it's even if it's quieted at the muzzle. So the, you could kind of break suppressors into three categories. You could say rimfire suppressors and then handgun, suppressors, and then centerfire rifle ones. Um, so rimfire cans with, with subsonic ammunition, so the speed of sound is around 1050 or 1100 feet a mm-hmm. second, depending on how, your elevation. Um, anything below that, you can get a very quiet, nearly Hollywood sound, but they're not very effective for shooting critters. Yeah, they're not. Um, outside of keeping squirrels away from your bird feeder, they're not very effective. Um, and then moving into the next category with handgun suppressors, um, a lot of handguns again are below the speed of sound. 45 ACP is going to be below that range. Some nine mm loads, um, those can be reasonably quiet as well. Um, but then when you move into to centerfire rifle suppressors, they even with um, you know even with it on there, it's going to be reasonably loud. But it puts it down to a level where it's safe to your ears. You can shoot it without hearing protection safely, um, and that's sort of the threshold that we all shoot for is, is hearing safe. Um, And I'm interested in that sort of thing from a hunting perspective, because I do hunt on a few pieces of private property that are not that big. And I just don't like bothering the landowners. You know, I I like to shoot my little rim fire suppressor in the backyard so I don't bother my neighbors. I can be a good neighbor. And, you know, interestingly, here in the U.S., we regulate silencers heavily. Mm -hmm. In a lot of other countries, they're... Yeah, they're almost mandatory equipment. Um, You know, firearms are difficult to to purchase in those countries, but suppressors are, you know, something you Mm -hmm. buy at a hardware store. Why is that? Um just I think it's public perception. Mm-hmm. I think um you know they, people have seen too many gangster movies and you know they have this notion that you know this the uh, the assassin's going to be sneaking across a rooftop somewhere and shoot quietly. Yeah. Um but that's really not not how that works.
0: Yeah, I think from a uh, getting my kids involved in shooting sports it is a it is a it's like it's just like riding in a car with a kid so you got to strap them into the car seat, and there's all this extra stuff that goes that's involved. Versus, if I had a car that was made out of a bubble, it'd be a lot easier to go somewhere. With shooting, you know, you got to strap on the the, the earphones, the earplugs, and keeping an earplug in a three-year-old's ear—that's not going to happen. So you got to get them these hot earphones. If it's hot outside, they're uncomfortable, and they're not going to have a good time. Versus, if you're using this this noise control method of a suppressor. Wow, the mm-hmm. the whole game really changed and everybody's enjoying it and nobody's damaging their hearing and you're not annoying the neighbor um, down the street or, or whatever. And, and I think it's just a, a wonderful concept that uh, I wish we could – I wish it was just something you could purchase over the counter and, and that guns came factory that way. Um, I think it would just – I think it would probably make the public appreciate firearms a little more because they wouldn't be annoyed by it. Yeah.
2: Yeah, My like like you were talking about with kids, my five-year-old – yeah, you know, when we go to shoot something, he'll ask that question: Are we shooting a quiet gun or a loud gun?
0: Yeah, and you
2: know he's got his little ear muffs that he wears. He calls them his ear gloves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, you know, puts his ear gloves on, and and he's real, he's extremely sensitive to loud noises. He doesn't even like the, the hand dryer at the you know the men's room. Okay, um, so it's he's really sensitive to that. So I've tried to be extremely careful about his hearing. Um, so yeah, he he's been around both loud guns and quiet yep.
1: guns, and he certainly prefers the quiet ones. For somebody who shoots as much as you do. Um, Can you give a pitch for the importance of hearing protection and protecting your ears? Is that something that you are pretty um, passionate about? Huh?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, I've certainly lost hearing, um, both from being in machine shops and from from shooting, Um, even though I'm very careful about using hearing protection. But just through the volume that I've shot, I've definitely seen a a drop off in my hearing. And I don't want to be the old guy that just walks around going, huh? All the time. Um, Nobody does. So you know, it, it's, it's incredibly important. And even in a hunting scenario, um, you know, I spent some time in a duck blind in Louisiana, probably lost as much hearing in a few days of that. Exactly. Um, yeah. As, you know, as a lot of the shooting I've done because I wasn't wearing ear protection and we were shooting a lot of loud shotguns in close proximity in, in a duck blind.
1: Yeah. Um, and what can you do? Cause you rely on your ears, you know, to, you have to have them. Yeah. So
2: yeah, it's a tough situation. So it's
1: uh, you what, know, you, what about some of those products that are like the, the earmuffs, head headsets where it's a sound reduction of loud cracks, like sonic booms and stuff, but you can amplify. Yeah. I've used electronic earmuffs
2: a lot. They're really good when I've taught handgun shooting classes, for instance, because I can speak to the students and Mm -hmm. hear their feedback. Um, so they're really good for that. The problem with them from an outdoor perspective is they it's the direction is kind of messed up. You know, your ears determine direction by which ear the sound gets to first. Um, and you don't really get that same effect if you're using the electronic muff. So for uh-huh. a hunting situation, it's tougher.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. I've same. never used them, I've, so I didn't. I've know. tried Walker's Game Ear and stuff, and and it's just not for me. Uh, it seems to handicap me as much as anything. But uh, I'm with you. I, I try to do everything I can to protect my ears. I mean, that's that's part of my livelihood. So having bad ears, I might not have a job at some point.
2: Yeah, I've I've noticed. Um, like I, I took my ex-wife hunting. You know, some and she had a lot better ears than i did and i noticed that she could tell direction of sound a lot better than i could i would say oh, i think it's over that way and she said no no you idiot it's over this mm. way and
1: usually she was correct so you know she had definitely experienced less hearing damage than i had as a tie-in to cody's question in the meat i want to ask a fun question um there's the obvious answers but there may be some um that i don't pick up on you talked about hollywood and the portrayal of silencers and uh your distaste for that. What are the things do you see in movies and pop culture that just drive you insane?
2: Oh, it's horrible. Um, just like anybody, you know, if, if someone who's a nurse watches a medical show, they just roll their eyes <laughs> yeah, constantly uh-huh. at, at what's going on. And it's the same thing with firearms. They're, they're incredibly unrealistic in in almost every way in most cases. Um, so, you know, firearms that shoot forever without ever needing yeah. to reload. Yeah.
0: They never need to reload. <laughs> Clint Eastwood and the one thing he's like, you got to ask yourself, did I shoot three times or was it, you know, whatever? Yeah. Uh.
2: (laughs) Well, it there's there's it's just so bad. They they shoot firearms that are not remotely suitable for the purpose that they're using them for. Um, They make ridiculous shots that could never that you know humans couldn't possibly make.
1: Um, Was the movie where they're bending the bullet? Oh, that's uh, that's the most ludicrous stuff. Um, but like well, you don't do that. When no, when you, you if you swing your gun barrel fast. Oh, that's enough. how I get most of my, my deer. That's how I get with a muzzle loader. Oh, there's a tree there, no problem. Yeah, I don't, I'll just I don't shoot around, around that tree.
2: Well, and that stuff that. is borderline sci-fi. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, not even borderline. It, it's definitely sci-fi. Um, so there, you know, there are so many examples of just bad gun handling and and um and and what's interesting is is if they did it correctly i think it'd be more interesting to watch Mm -hmm. even for somebody that Mm -hmm. that doesn't know about firearms you know that there have been a a few movies that have come out in the last 10 years or so that have gotten a lot better um, because they're starting to send some of the hollywood guys out to actual places to train where they're getting real instruction from people that know what they're doing and it's um it's a big it's a big difference
1: how about shooting indoors scenes where people are like shooting in a parking garage or something Uh,
2: well and it (laughs) Or inside a car, or oh, something like that. Yeah.
1: yeah, it's it's incredibly loud when you're
2: inside of an enclosed space like that. Um, and you know, there. If you shot a firearm inside a closed automobile, you'd probably rupture your eardrums. You oh know? yeah. And you'd you'd be instantly out of the fight after that. Whatever you're doing, you'd be over. Yeah. Um, and know. so, any kind of an enclosed space shooting of firearms um, is
1: is a big deal. I had a mo I, the moment I realized that. Um, for me personally, I was probably 15 and I was shooting in a blind that had a tin roof Mm -hmm. and, um, a coyote came running across. So I had to swing my barrel out of this window and turn and shoot like that. The muzzle was inside the window and I was out of commission for like hours. Like I couldn't hear, I was disoriented. Um, it was awful
2: yeah, one of the dumbest things I ever did, I was shooting a three gun match in South Carolina, and somehow I managed to start the stage without my ear protection on. And um, and I you know, started off shooting some handgun targets and I was shooting really well so I was like, all right, I'm not stopping myself. Well, then I had to to run up onto a platform and shoot a an AR through a barrel so that you know the muzzle inside oh. that barrel and then reverberating back mm-hmm. at me, I, I could barely stand when I finished when I finished that string of fire because it was just so disorienting and 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 damaging yeah um that was an incredibly stupid
0: thing to do and i I wouldn't repeat that I've been inside a living room when a nine uh, millimeter went off and not not an enjoyable
1: thing that I don't ever want to experience again yep. hurt bad how about uh you you talked about deer did you hunt this turkey season you turkey hunt i turkey hunted
2: a little and I, and unfortunately I didn't hunt on any of you guys' properties this spring um I think I'll save some some draw picks for that next year yeah but yeah I, I turkey hunted a little bit i, I called in a, a gobbler one day on some public land and uh just he, he busted me i uh, didn't get a shot off but in there but yeah i enjoy turkey hunting i i got a little spoiled growing up in west virginia because the turkey hunting was so good there Okay. um so i i haven't turkey hunted here as much just because it's you know it's it's a little bit of a letdown from what i was used to
1: it's good to know you. yeah
0: Where was that spot at? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me see. What else do I want to ask you about? Let's see. We're flipping through our pamphlet okay. right now. So I asked you a little bit about, I asked you a great hunting revolver and a great hunting uh, semi-automatic handgun. Um, what is your, okay, say I'm I'm me. Don't have a ton of money, but I want to own a all-around, just everyday carry handgun. And I know what you're going to feel like i know what you're gonna say before you say it but what's uh and i'm on a budget what's my what's my go-to reliable just everyday carry for going out on you know adventures hunting fishing paddling keeping in the truck carrying whatever
2: well the standard answer for that's going to be some some manner of a glock probably a glock 19 or something and i'm i'm not a glock guy per se i i I give my students a hard time about that Are glock guys just you know it's kind of like messing with their sports team or something um but you know as far as a reliable handgun that that can be learned pretty quickly and and you can manipulate it pretty easily it's tough to beat that um, There are a number of, of the sig products I like really well as as well Yeah, you know, I, I carry mostly sig handguns for my personal defense stuff um, so you know i would I would point those out as well and and for an outdoorsman don't uh don't give a revolver short shrift either
0: hundred percent. What about the 1911? Uh, you're a 1911
2: guy. Yeah, I am a 1911 guy. Um, and I shoot them more than I do anything else. Sure. Um, but I typically don't carry them that much. They're large, they're heavy. Um, and you know, they're just that there, there are other things that I use for carry guns. I find that if I've got a large carry gun, i leave it in the truck. If I've got a small carry gun, I usually do carry it. So for that reason, and, and that's for outdoor stuff too. Um, although if I'm, if I'm open carrying in an outdoor scenario, um, I'm a little more likely to have a large handgun, a big revolver, or a
0: 1911. Sure. Um, yeah, that's, that's great answers there. I agree with everything you said. Um, what about budget, reliable? So as a, as a gunsmith receiving work from the public, you are bound to have some opinions on brand or mm-hmm. model of firearms that are It's a great question. Good and ones that are kind of lemons. Um, at, for a big game, North Carolina big game hunting rifle, budget-minded, where where should someone be thinking about?
2: Well, there are a lot of good answers on that one, so it's it's not like that there are a lot of wrong ones. Um, what I would typically point someone toward would be your, your really basics. Um, you know, we talked about the Remington 700 and Winchester Model 70. Um, probably the the best bang for your buck on a factory rifle right now are tickets. Yep, the the Finnish made, made tickets. Um, you know, you can get one of those for really in the same price range that you can get a Remington seven hundred,
0: um, and and they're
2: shooting really well. Okay, um, they t- they mm, tend that's to be good to know. Nice. Yeah,
0: see, I just I have trouble sending anyone to a non American rifle. Now shotguns, I say buy from Italy all day.
2: I, I'm good with the Finns, though. They uh, they do a lot of moose shooting up there, and they're they're really serious about the rifle stuff.
0: Um, How about shotguns?
2: Well, for a general purpose hunting type gun, it would be hard to beat a Benelli. Mm-hmm. Um, but for a for a more budget um, approach, I'd probably go to a pump gun, and then you could go just with your um, Remington eight seventy, Mossberg five hundred. Yep. Do you like Franksies? I do. The Frankies are um, they're basically a, a Browning a Browning Auto five, the mm-hmm. old Auto five yeah. in an aluminum receiver. Um, they tend to to have a lot more recoil. Uh, because of the the style of of recoil operation, that long recoil operation tends to knock the crap out of you.
0: Yeah, I agree. We uh, there's a Franke in my safe. Beretta. Yeah, the Beretta shotguns are great. Okay. Um, the 303s, the right. 390s. If it comes from France or Italy. If it comes from Italy, not France. <laughs> if it comes from Italy. <laughs> you good shape.
2: <laughs> for some, for someone who um, who wants a trouble-free shotgun, I would lean more toward recoil operation than gas operated. Mm-hmm. Um, gas operation tends to have a little lighter recoil, but yeah. uh, but does you know the does tend to be more reliable. Yeah, If you don't take
0: mm-hmm. one of these basic uh, gun cleaning classes, the gas operation is probably not for you.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, they are more complex. Yeah, you got and a lot to do. The other problem with a gas operated shotgun is that shotgun shells. You know the average consumer wants a, a shotgun that's going to operate with anything from you know two and lot, three quarters yeah seven eighths of an ounce, two and three quarter loads up through you know three or three and a half inch magnums. And if you think about it from a from a manufacturer's perspective, trying to to design a shotgun that can work reliably with that huge range of ammunition is tough. Um, incredibly tough I couldn't agree, um, yeah. so for gas operation you have to have some sort of an adjustable gas system that compensates for that extra gas pressure and, and that's a hard thing to have um, the berettas have done it reasonably well the 1187 wasn't was remington's attempt to uh to deal with that mm-hmm. the Versamax does the same thing um to try to come up with some way to to accommodate a large range of ammunition um, whereas some of the the recoil
1: operated guns they don't seem to care yeah you know, they they tend to function no matter what My eleven eighty seven. I've had this problem twice, and I want to know if it's just me or if you see this um, because I'm I'm sure this has come past you before. Hopefully, Um, there's a. I've obviously I've shown that this is not my world, and that's okay. I'm I'm fine being a. uh, Oh, I'm I'm a I'm a layman here. I'm fine being a complete layman and asking stupid questions, and obviously showing that I don't know as much as nearly as much as you do or Cody as you do. But inside my uh, the chamber of my eleven eighty seven, there is a shim on the left hand side of the gun that is part of the reloading process um, and it has come loose twice. Is that something that you see often? And is mm-hmm. there an easy fix for that? You have to weld it back on, or what do you do? Um, you'd probably want to solder it back on. Solder it back um, on.
2: Yeah, you, you'd want to, that. Would be a, something that you would actually have a gunsmith do. More. Okay, I've that, had that a gun.
1: I've had a gunsmith do it once, and it came back off like a two weeks later.
2: Yeah, that wouldn't be normally a home repair,
1: but it wasn't one of your students. So,
2: well, hope not. But yeah, it wasn't.
1: You never know though. <laughs> the uh, one of the biggest things I see
2: with with uh, hunting guns. And I've seen this a lot, and it, and it applies to shotguns and rifles. Um, you know, you, you finish hunting for the day, you throw it behind a seat in a truck. Um, Remington 742s are, are classic for this. They they leave the chamber loaded on a cold day. It warms up. You get condensation off of, the, off of all the metal parts, the brass specifically from a cartridge casing. You get a little bit of corrosion in the chamber, and then the next time you fire it, it either, A, rips the head, the the head off of the shell casing, or B breaks the extractor or both. Um, and it's because you, you get that corrosion in the chamber and when the brass casing swells to fill that chamber, it sticks to those, that, the, pist, the pits from the rust um, and they, it just can't extract, it can't okay. physically extract. So it's super common problem, you see, we see those every year. It happens with shotguns as well, people leave their shotgun loaded, um, condensation occurs around, that, around the shell and it, it can't escape because it's, you know, it's kind of stuck and, in there. And that's from leaving it in the chamber. Mm-hmm. That's from leaving around chambered. Um, and it happens all the time. We, and we it, from everything, from twenty two long rifle to, to whatever caliber you want. Um, and it's it's super common.
0: Huh, really? So people are riding around with chambered, chambered Oh, absolutely, Chambered, yeah. chambered yeah. rifle. <laughs> so the only thing I'm, I would ever leave chambered is my carry handgun. Like, you know, the handgun that's my, this is the one I'm going to pull if I need it. That's chambered, but huh? And don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, people leave their guns
2: loaded a lot more than you would you would you would suspect. Um, Matter of fact, when you find old muzzleloaders in the oh,
0: everybody's left one in from last year. (laughs) Well, and I don't I don't
2: mean just like a muzzleloader they hunt with. I mean like the one they find from their great great granddaddy that was in the Civil War. (laughs) Most most of those are loaded. Um, You know, when people bring in the you know the old this has been on the the mantelpiece of our family's house for 150 years it's probably still loaded um, and it, it happens all the time but yeah of course muzzleloader hunting um everybody leaves one in there from the previous year and, and you get a like if you look down oh, the board you got that big in. corrosion ring right there at the back where that uh, especially mm-hmm. pyradex is very hydroscopic mm-hmm. um tends to hold moisture really really is there badly any
0: fix for that other than i mean once it's pitted it's pitted once
2: it's pitted it's pitted yeah yep. you're kind of stuck with it yeah
0: luckily uh
2: with muzzle loaders especially when we're shooting sabot uh bullets they tend to be not as affected by that little bit of pitting as as you would normally see in a in a traditional rifle but it's still a
0: bad thing it's a bad thing yeah uh, i've had i had a muzzle loader pretty much ruined just because of that but it was a cheap the cheaper the muzzle loader i think that's going to affect it more too probably yeah good man good
1: information yeah what else what time are we at we're uh we're towards wrapping up. We're at one twenty five. All right, good deal. Well, when you when we're getting ready to wrap up, and I'll go ahead and ask it now, um, this pamphlet that you have, is there a digital form of this?
2: Sure. Yeah, you can go to the Montgomery Community College's website, Montgomery.edu. Um and that's you know it's easy to find. Sometimes the classes are a little tougher to find on there. You have to go to uh, the continuing education section to find the the short term classes. Um, that can be a little bit difficult to navigate, but they're they're on there. Um, and you can do a search for NRA classes or knife making okay. classes in the you know I think the top right part of the the, the main page.
0: What's a uh, we did, we neglected to talk about it much, and we probably should have because it's super cool. But a knife making class is that taking something from uh, high-carbon steel and going through the forging process, or is that just a kit?
2: Um, usually not a kit. Um, typically... We do some forging classes and some, some stock removal where you're just taking a piece of, of rectangular stock and grinding a knife out of it. Um, but typically starting with something like that and some basic scales of handle material, whether it's micarta or, or whatever type of wood you want to use for a handle, um, and shaping that to the knife. Um, we've got some we've got a basic version of that. The, the Christmas knife-making class is really cool because you get to make a Christmas gift for somebody, so you come in and do oh, some. Oh, yeah, that and, is cool. And you make a knife what a for, great idea. You know, for your dad or your, your father in law or whoever for, for Christmas or your mother-in-law for that matter and uh, it's, it's a really neat class and, and it's a good one. How many days is that one? I think that's a four-day class. That's a
0: four-day class.
2: And you know come in, in in December when it's too cold to do a lot of other things outside and you uh, you make a knife.
0: Now are you like are you director of those programs
1: also?
2: I'm not um, so Alex Williams who's who works below, uh, uh, works for me on NRA classes also does the knife making classes. Knife
1: making classes. Being uh, being in your position being the director uh, obviously you 're not teaching all these classes. How many of them have you gotten to take it's tough for me to take classes uh-huh. there
2: um because students keep coming to find me, yeah, so um, I almost need to go incognito or take classes at another school uh-huh. but um what I do is though is drift in and out of the classes, hey, do you guys need anything and I get to get to look at all their cool secrets and you know oh, if I can pick up two or three things from any instructor that comes yeah. through oh, i've had yeah. a i've had a really good day.
0: What a great job, man you're just constantly around everybody that likes the same things you like and around people that are experts in their field that you can glean off of what a what a cool job <laughs> i'm
2: i'm fascinated with anybody who's really good at what they do um so if you know if somebody said that the world's the best basket weaver was going to put on a demonstration across the street i'd want to go see it yeah. because i like to see people who are, who are good at what they do and it doesn't really matter what but especially when it's something that i'm interested in as well i'm i'm especially interested um you know some of the folks we get. I'm looking at the knife making list here, and I've got Ed Vanoy popping up at me there. Um, he's designed a ton of knives for Columbia River. He's got 40 or 50 patents on knife on knife designs and locking oh, mechanisms. Wow. Mm-hmm. And you know, he's one of those guys. He, he's sort of made his career already, and he just enjoys coming out and teaching classes. Fab- fabulous instructor. You know, those those kind of people being getting to be around them are, you know, it's it's tough to overestimate
0: how you know what an impact that's had on me think that's what i should have got my wife for her birthday was a uh knife make got her the knife enrolled her in the knife
1: making course she would like that send her on out that'd be great she's yeah.
0: fascinated with with knife making
1: you brought um some sheets here and i want to make sure that we didn't miss anything that you wanted to touch on is there any other courses or things that you want the people listening to know other than to come and sign up for a class
2: well you know i, I didn't want to make this whole thing and add just an advertisement oh, for the school please. but um But, you know, there, there there's some really cool classes that, that people find very interesting, you know, on the knife making side that we talked about the Tomahawk forging, there's a a D guard Bowie making Bowie knife making class, which is, you know, big, super cool, large Bowie knife. Um, you know, those are really interesting. Cody mentioned the 1022 class, which is already happened for the year. So, you know, we'll probably run another one of those next year, all the AR classes, um, anything that, that, interest you and it's hard to really say what somebody's going to be interested in well they have Uh, everything if you're yeah
1: yeah, if you have if you're interested in something they've got it this is a gear junkies the uh you
2: know you mentioned the stippling class we have uh you know, a, a female instructor for that, that that is fantastic, does a great job. She's always very popular with all the students. Um, you know, she comes out and does does a really artistic version of, of stippling a plastic grip on a Glock or a Springfield XD or a uh, Smith & Wesson M&P, something like that. And that one doesn't require a lot of, of prior skill. You know, it's it's something that, that someone with, you know, very basic knowledge can come in and do. Um, you know, a lot of the classes do require a little bit of, of you know, prior understanding you know the rifle load development i mentioned earlier is a great one because it it really doesn't someone who's a you know kind of a neophyte reloader could come in and do that class um you know some of the others that would be more you know more skill based whether you're talking about remington 700 rebarreling or um, you know a custom 1911 build class you you'd want to come into that with a little bit of skill a little bit of prior knowledge we do a a suppressor build class. We talked about suppressors where where people can can build their own suppressor. And you just, everyone has to file an ATF Form 1 where they can manufacture their own legally. Um, But you would need a little bit of of lathe or mill experience in order to be able to do that class very well. Okay. And that's always super popular, but you know, people want to know, can I take a basic lathe class, learn that, and then come take the suppressor class. And in most cases, you probably could get through it, but it would be a little
0: tough. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's 35. I just I just I'm, kinda, I'm
0: interested in all of it man. Yeah, there's, there's 35 one, short. There's not one thing I can say uh the reason I keyed in on the 1022 thing is because those are special to me That's the first gun that I ever started modifying at all, you know, because it's so available. All mm-hmm. the parts, I mean trigger trigger kits and barrels and you could just I mean we would we would change them every week to Sure. It's different. a tinkerer's dream. Yep. And so I that was what I started messing with uh, as a you know, 13, 14, 15-year-old kid. Mm-hmm. Just change saving up my money and buying carbon fiber barrels and stuff so to have be an adult and go back to that world and start playing with 1022s again i thought that was great
2: the 1022 <laughs> and the ar-15 it's, it's like legos for grown-ups mm-hmm. you know, that's you can, right you can snap on this and take off that and...
0: yeah what a great what a great thing to do go sign up yeah go sign up any burning thoughts or things you want to leave folks with before we uh sign off
2: no i just i 've been glad to, to have the opportunity to come out and talk to folks and you know you guys are are really cool and do cool things and uh, want to see Thank if you. i can I can help with that and and then also see if we can sell a few people on some gunsmithing classes well Sweet. man
0: we we appreciate you coming. I hope we asked the right questions um, Sam and I neither one of us are are gunsmiths or claim to be, but we like it we we like having friends that are gunsmiths that's the best kind of friend is. <laughs> I was telling I told Mikey uh, last night I got a One of my good friends just moved away. I was like, I got to get some new friends because I I like having friends that, A, they don't mind splitting the bill. They show up on time and they're willing to go at a moment's notice and that they know how to work on stuff. Like I need friends that like at least have the same level of working on stuff that I have, but preferably more than me. That's where I want to be. So
2: you should put out an application to be your friend. Yeah. Basically, there'll be an
0: ad on Craigslist for a friend, yeah. and this
1: is what you—anybody are <laughs> going to email in? So you're going to put an ad out. Yeah, well, in? this is, this is the ad here. Uh-huh. Uh,
0: so email me; it's uh, Cody at Three Rivers Land Trust. If you want to be
1: <laughs> be my friend, I'll
0: I will screen applications. And <laughs> what what do you bring to the bring you know, to the you bargain know, what, here? Yeah,
1: you know, what do you bring? I mean, I can tell you what I bring. <laughs> you tell me what you got. It's, Snacks. You need a good snack guy. A,
0: a snack guy. Look, you can make up for not knowing how to do stuff if you're a snack guy. Uh-huh. And I have friends that are snack guys, yeah. and they get they get to come along because, or I go with them because they're willing to do, be the snack guy. Like, when we stop at the store, they run in and get the, the drinks and the whatever, and they're the snack guy, and that's cool. That, so if you have a deficiency in your friendship skills, you can be the snack guy. In your guy. application, definitely yep. put in snack guy. Snack guy. guy. Um, or, like, always willing to fill up with gas. Like, I can be the guy that tops off the tank no matter what. That's cool. <laughs> good. I'm, I'm into that, but I like having friends that know how to fix stuff when it breaks, or like if you're on a trip and you just got something going wrong, like they're cool in a crappy situation, cool and collected. Yeah. So that's what I need. Need more of those. Everybody, everybody needs more of those, right? Mm-hmm. I I know, it's not just me. Everybody needs those kind of friends. I want friends that graduated from Montgomery Community yeah, College. Me. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Put that on your resume when you email me. <laughs> All right. That's ridiculous. If you like the content and you would like it to keep coming, you should still know that this podcast is just one of the tools that we use here at Three Rivers Land Trust to further our conservation mission. Our number one priority and purpose has always been to conserve land and natural resources for future generations and to be a voice for wildlife to ensure that they have habitats forever here in North Carolina. The podcast is just a byproduct to further that mission. To be a part of the team in the fight for the conservation mission you should visit our website at www.3riverslandtrust.org
1: So I just got off the phone with Shane Dublin of Rock Outdoors in Lexington, North Carolina off of Highway 8 and first of all he's just a super nice guy and a supporter of conservation locally. Secondly, their store if you like this podcast if you like the Central Piedmont if you like the outdoors you're going to like Rock Outdoors in Lexington. It is an unbelievable shop. They have fishing equipment when I was on the phone with Shane he was saying their fishing gear is just flying off the shelves their kayaks and their boats are. that business is doing great and since we talk about camping so much on this on this show and we talk about the gear that we like to use he wanted us to let y'all know that their camping selection is in my opinion and in his opinion one of the best in the state Um, let me just give you a list of some of the brands they have MSR Big Agnes Eureka Jetboil, boil, thermorest, rest GSI, Campcha. these are,
0: These are all brands that you can't go to the big box store and pick up. Yeah. These are brands that true professionals are using. Mm-hmm. And with me and camping gear, camping gear and tools are the two things that I I don't like ordering these. I like to go into a store. Like you're about that with shades. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You want to try them on. I feel like I need to go mess with it and see if it's going to be what I need. See yeah. if it's intuitive and user-friendly and tough. And there's not many places you can go pick up an MSR water purifier or stove mm-hmm. and see if it's going to be what you need.
1: Yeah. If you are an outdoors person, this is the gear that you need. I need more of it. I'm going to go over there and get me some. So go check them out. Or a doomsday prepper. Yeah. This is the kind of stuff you're going to need. Yeah. I, I mean, I agree. I'm going to use it. Rock Outdoors. Highway 8, Lexington, North Carolina, and their website is rockoutdoors.com. Go check them out.